Welcome everyone to episode three of Plot Devices. We've made it to the Trinity. Is it a good Trinity? You decide by subscribing and following, and I hope you do. I am your host for today, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Sam and Corvaya. Sam, how are you today? Hello, I'm great, Brandon. How are you? Good. Uh, also joining us is the ghost of Noah Guzman over, uh, over Zoom. Noah Guzman, how are you, the ghost of Noah Guzman? Hello. I'm doing excellent. Um, I hope you all are having a beautiful week. Uh, we're here in September. I'm excited to get started with our third episode. And, you know, we make a great team. Let's get some, let's get some content out. By the way, fam, he's a ghost because his camera is not working. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we're, we're not fancy enough to have video yet, but for those of you listening, uh, he, the ghost is just a visual ghost. Or we're also not video. rich enough to have real ghosts, but anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag ghosts are classists. Uh, <laughs> oh God, this ghost bit went on. So yeah, go on, Brandon. Sorry. <laughs> let's let's get some non-ghost news. That we're t- Although I, technically there is might something to be brought up, but we'll get oh. to it. Paramount has basically decided to skip the rest of 2021 altogether. Uh, They have essentially moved all three of their major next uh, releases to 2022. Jackass Forever will be moving from October 2021 of this year, uh, October 2021, uh, up to the highly more, uh, to the much more romantic date of February 2021. Uh, We are also getting the big one, uh, Top Gun Maverick, which is going to be moving from this November, which is really uh, originally slated to come out this Thanksgiving, all the way back to May of 2021. Uh, This will be at least three years to the day of when the original release date for Maverick was supposed to come out. So that will be a long uh, potential delay. Also, taking that, uh, that May 2022 slot, of course, is Maverick, but moving away from that is another Tom Cruise uh, vehicle, Mission Impossible 7, which will be moving up to September 2022. That will be, again, about a year and a half to two years delay after that was supposed to come out. So, again, a very big story in the world of Paramount, moving release dates once again in the wake of you know, pandemic badness. Uh, we did also get in that report some news that the next Paranormal Activity movie was going to be moving directly to, uh, to Paramount+. Plus. Uh, there was some reports that it might be going theatrical that is uh, that has been debunked and it also reinforced that Top Gun Maverick is still being sought after by Netflix and Apple TV but Paramount does not want to budge on theatrical release uh, but it will still as of now be the traditional uh, traditional nowadays uh, 45 day windows in theaters as well as going to Paramount Plus directly afterwards. Uh, Noah I want to start with you uh, which of these are you most excited to hear about uh, and which of you are are you most disappointed to hear about moving delay or if you're not disappointed in them at all? Delays upon delays upon delays is like the news that you're not surprised hearing uh, throughout this time of the pandemic. So the fact that Jackass Forever, Top Gun Maverick, and Mission Impossible 7 um, are all being pushed to 2022 release dates uh, is a little bit indifferent to me. You know, I think the one that caught my attention recently was Jackass Forever because I was at a screening for Shang-Chi earlier this week and I saw the preview for Jackass Forever and it just made me go, damn, these guys are at it again. And Honestly, it's just, it's heartwarming to see uh, these jackasses, for lack of a better term. Uh, I'll just be really close friends and buds even throughout uh, decades that we've seen them on big screens and on small screens. I was a fan of the TV show as well as uh, all the different spinoffs on MTV. Uh, That's what you watch when you don't have Disney Plus and whatever other streaming platforms of today. Uh, So I got to say, while I'm excited for what jackass has to offer in this new, in this new age of like, really what these old men can do to their bodies. Um, I'm excited to see what those pranks are going to be. I know that uh, Eric Andre is going to be a part of that feature. So I uh, love him. Would love to see 
more of him. Um, I'm a big Mission Impossible fan, though. So seeing more uh, Mission Impossible, I think Haley Atwell is confirmed. And um, seeing her alongside Tom Cruise is going to be a treat. Uh, and Top Gun Maverick, I have just never uh, familiarized, familiarized myself with. So uh, that's the one I'm least excited for. So right now, Jackass Forever, I will go see that probably with my dad because he loves that type of comedy, that hilarity. And then Mission Impossible 7, I'll be paying attention to for sure. Sam, Somewhere are you ready to world. wait? Are you ready to wait a little bit longer for the need for speed? Yes, I'm okay with that. (laughs) But but, um, I was just going to say that somewhere Steve-O is screaming, who are you calling old? (laughs) And so, um, but as he points out in the trailer, Johnny Knoxville is only 49. So yes, (laughs) (laughs) that's true. Um, And so for me, I I was actually never a fan of like the jackass stuff. I never got into it. What I'm really excited about is actually Top Gun Maverick. And so I was kind of bummed to see it get moved yet again. Um, so it's kind of weird because I think if, if my math is correct, I think that this is, will be releasing at this point now, four years after they had filmed it. And so that's just insane to think about. And it's just a shame you see those effects of what the pandemic are like. Like Noah was saying, it's not unusual to see those those reports nowadays to see that something has been moved um and i know for sure it's keeping us on our toes and everybody in the movie industry on their toes to see when stuff's coming out but i'm excited about it because i do really like the original and so i was really happy to hear that they were making a new one um so we'll we'll see what happens there and then with mission impossible again i don't mean to be like apparently on a tom cruise train hype a hype train right now but uh (laughs) with the mission impossible 7 i'm also really excited about that especially because there was some hype over like this major stunt that he did now and this guy who does his own stunts like i mean tom cruise is well known for doing that in his movies so I mean, I'm just excited to see it. I, I'm always thinking, what the heck is he doing next? And somehow did, he manages to do it right. <laughs> did he hang on to another plane as it takes off and release a blood-curdling scream? <laughs> did he yet again break his ankle after hitting the side of a skyscraper building thing? I don't know <laughs> what he'll do next. I want to add to uh, just looking at some top map, some top gun numbers, uh, because I've never seen the original. I was just curious, like, what? what are the high hopes behind uh, Maverick at the box office? So just to inform you both, after a quick Google search, I saw that the budget for the original Top Gun was $15 million, and at the box office, it grossed $357.1 million, which I was blown away by. Um, and then the budget for the new Top Gun Maverick is $152 million. So I wonder what kind of success they foresee for this uh, Top Gun movie coming decades after the original. First of all, I did not know Top Gun was that cheap to make. Uh, I don't know how Tony Scott got away with that, but good on him. I was actually, at fourth wall break, I was at, I was back home in uh, Orange County over the weekend, and I actually rewatched Top Gun for the first time in years. Uh, and it's goofy. It's way too homoerotic for its own good, but it's also really kind of fun. I like the story behind it. There is something cool to be said about, you know, drone pilots and how they interact and everything. And I've been excited to see like where Maverick goes. If for no other reason than, hi dad, if you're listening to this, my dad is not, he's not a fan of movie theaters, but he wants to see this in the theaters and I am taking him whether his life depends on it or not. So that is obviously the one I'm looking forward to the most. Um, Mission Impossible is going to do bank either way. Uh, Those movies do great overseas. They do well domestically, but they do really well overseas. And obviously, you know, the addition of Haley Atwell and Carrie Elwes and, you know, the, the sort of, the Christopher McQuarrie dynasty of Mission Impossible has been really solid over the last number of films. And I'm really excited to see 
again, like, what will he do next? But also, like, where do you take the spy world and where does Ethan Hunt go as a character? And I like that thing. And as far as Jackass goes, I will I will fully admit I've never been a fan. I always thought it was incredibly stupid and ridiculous as a kid. But I will admit in nowadays, you know, post, you know, David Dobrik and Prank versus Prank, I wonder how, you know, that sort of prank culture and that sort of, you know, absurdity of physical comedy that we've gotten with the YouTube space, I wonder how that will filter into Jackass Forever. Obviously, these guys are, you know, insanely talented what they do. I'm sure they will be incredibly knowledgeable about what they do. But I, I'm very curious about, like, what happens when you put, like, Tyler the Creator and Machine Gun Kelly and Eric Andre in your movie? Like, how does that work? So I, I am curious, but, you know, not to the same degree as, you know, the fans are, per se. All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, we got, seemingly, the final No Time to Die trailer. Uh, it is still, uh, again, we just talked about pandemic delays. We just talked about studio switch-ups. So there is nothing to be certain. But it sounds like No Time to Die is still scheduled for release on September 30th in the UK, followed by a week later in the US on October 8th. And we just got the quote-unquote final trailer released. Uh, it shows more of uh, Daniel Craig's final outing as James Bond, along with returning cast members such as B.S.C. Do. Naomi Harris and Ray Fiennes, as well as Rami Malek as our new villain. I believe it's, oh God, I'm forgetting his name, but someone look it up. And as well as uh, Lashana Lynch, Ana de Armas, uh, Rory Kinnear is popping up in there. Very huge cast, of course, directed by Beasts of No Nation uh, and True Detective Helen Rikirji Pupinaga, who we are all very interested in seeing about this. Uh, and again, this will be Craig's final supposed outing as James Bond once this hit theaters. And we also got the announcement that there that that will be documented as well in the upcoming Apple TV documentary, Becoming James Bond, which will focus on interviews with Craig, as well as series producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli. It will go into like extensive behind the scenes of the last 15 years, I believe. And I will look at the exact release date. Sam, your thoughts on this final No Time to Die trailer and the documentary revolving around Craig's years as Bond. Yeah, honestly, I'm really excited for both projects, especially because uh, Mortal Movie Sin over here, I actually haven't seen any James Bond movies at all, not even Skyfall or any of the recent <laughs> ones. So I am I'm committing a Mortal Movie Sin here. Um, and so for me, I think this is going to be a good time to start no time like the present if you will to start watching these and so come on <laughs> i loved Ooh. it i loved it <laughs> <laughs> so i gotta i gotta be sure to watch those because it's like it you know i i think that daniel craig has really left his mark in this james bond franchise and so it'll just be really exciting to see this closing to to his run in this generation of james bond fans so i'm i'm personally very excited about it the trailer looked really great and i i love rami malek just i mean this entire cast is amazing but i really liked rami malek's work and so i'm excited to see him as the villain in this role and then of course again to go back to the documentary that's just going to add a lot of context on um the james bond films that i i need and would love to see and I should comment, uh, Rami Malek's villain character is the incredibly subtle name of Lyutsefer Saftin. So if you needed to know he was bad, he's literally named the devil. Um, Noah, your thoughts on No Time to Die and uh, your experience with Bond as a whole? I have been ready to see No Time to Die since uh, the trailer was first dropped, if anybody remembers when, because at this point it's like, here's the final trailer for No Time to Die until we delay it again. But I mean, I'm here for it. I'm, I, I didn't really... I'm trying to imagine if I saw any any new imagery from the new from the trailer that excited me even more, like engaged me even further. And I don't think so. Of course, just like you said, Sam, I'm here for Rami Malek. I'm excited to see Ana de Armas, um, Daniel Craig's last 
last portrayal of James Bond, even though reading he said that Spectre was kind of going to be his last um, portrayal as the character, something about No Time to Die brought him back. And I think that's what has me uh, returning to the franchise, because the last one I actually watched was Skyfall, which I was blown away by. I That was definitely a top movie for the year that I saw that. Regarding the Apple TV documentary, uh, 45 minutes were releasing next week. Definitely something I'm going to spend my time with. I want to see how Daniel Craig really embodies the character on and off screen. Um, that being a project from Apple TV. So to wrap it, yes, I am totally listening to any No Time to Die uh, media and any new trailer. I'll be there watching the documentary and I'll be there opening night. If you haven't listened to it already, Billie Eilish has the um, official song for the movie. It's called No Time to Die and available on Spotify. It is absolutely something I listen to whenever I write. It's gorgeous. I also love how we're going to look back at future generations and be like, oh yeah, the first thing nominated for No Time to Die was the Billie Eilish song from two years before it came out. That's how long delayed this movie has been. But um, I mean, there's something to say about the songs that are attached to the Bond projects like um, Adele's Skyfall, uh, Lana Del Rey's, I can't remember the name of this song. Wait, Lana Del Rey did a Bond song? Lana Del Rey has a Bond song. Hey, it's me, Noah from the future. Uh, this Noah has no idea what he's talking about. And he says Lana Del Rey has a song for the Bond films. Uh, it was for the same film that Sam Smith uh, submitted writings on the wall for or recorded writings on the wall for. So I apologize for my mistake here. Lana Del Rey, keep on keeping on. Sam Smith, love you. Again, I, I think we're all in the same boat that we have some serious Bond catch-ups to do. Maybe we'll do that for a special someday, like the Bond rundown. That could be fun. I definitely am planning on catching on just uh, catching up on just the last four Craig Bond films, that being Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, uh, Skyfall, and Spectre, because I remember Casino Royale and I remember some of Spectre, but I also remember seeing Spectre at like 1 a.m. and I don't remember much from it. Um, so I really need to go back and, you know, because I think, at least from what I've heard from fans, like Craig's, you know, kind of more complicated portrayal of more you know, modern spy warfare. And I think this trailer dives into some of that. We see the, the uh, back and forth with Lashana Lynch's character, who I cannot wait to see. I love the idea of 007 being recognized as a title, which has kind of just been a thing floating in the ether for a while. Um, and obviously, Kerry Fukunaga, who I cannot wait to see what he does with this. I'm a huge fan of his work. Uh, True Detective, obviously, Beast of Donation. To see what he can... Obviously, when Danny Boyle was attached to this, I was ecstatic. Kerry Fukunaga is no downgrade at all. I can't wait to see what he does with this. Again, box office is going to be so key for this. This will do amazing business in Europe. I just wonder how it will do worldwide, especially with the Amazon MGM merger. I'm still, I'm still hesitant about whether or not Amazon knows what to do with MGM as a film studio. They know how to market their own films. I don't know what they'll do with MGMs. So I'm a little cautious, but this trailer gives me nothing to doubt from. This looks awesome. All right, moving on to our third major story. The Fresh Prince prequel is a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. We're telling you guys it was a thing. Uh, the Fresh Prince Bel Air prequel, Bel Air, which is going to be launching on Peacock sometime next year, has just found its lead. Uh, Philadelphia native Jabari Banks was made official in a casting video on the Peacock YouTube channel by Will Smith himself, who surprised Jabari Banks with the uh, casting announcements. He is making his on screen debut in this, at least according to IMDb. He is a Philadelphia native, he is a musician. He graduated last year from the University of Arts in Philadelphia with a musical theater degree. Again, this will be his first, not just major on-screen debut, his on-screen debut period. 
Um, again, this will be debuting sometime next year on Peacock. Uh, will Smith will be producing as well as Morgan Cooper, whose fan-made trailer for Bel Air is the reason why this inspired this. There was a trailer about a young Will Smith and Fresh Prince of Bel Air that went viral last year, and Will Smith saw it, loved it, and pitched the series Peacock, and they loved it. Uh, also returning to the series will be the original producers, uh, Andy and Susan Borowitz, Benny Medina, and Quincy Jones himself, alongside new showrunners TJ Bradley and Rashid Newsom. They are best known for their work on shows like The Shy and Shooter and The 100. So that whole team will be getting together to tell the young days of, you know, the, the young kid from Philadelphia, born and raised. You, you know the theme song. I'm not going to sing it. I'm white as hell. Sam, your experience of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and what do you think of not just uh, Jabari Banks getting this opportunity as young Will Smith, but also getting to kind of live in this sort of pre-Fresh Prince era of, you know, 90s television? Honestly, I'm just excited for Jabari Banks because, I mean, the fact that he's a Philadelphia native, how convenient is that? You know, like you're already practically uh, fit for the role. And so I'm just really excited for him. And I have a lot of faith in this project because Will Smith is producing it. Like I I was a little skeptical when I first heard that, you know, like there was going to be a prequel series. And, you know, sometimes those could be hit or miss, as we know, prequels and sequels overall. They could really be debatable compared to originals. But if we have Smith attached to this project, I have full and complete faith in it. So I'm really excited to see what they'll do. And and if they plan on bringing kind of like this modern spin to the Fresh Prince series, because as we know, it's so stylized to the 90s. And so, you know, I know it's going to be a prequel. So maybe for all we know, we'll see something like more 80s like, but then, you know, who knows what kind of spin they could add to it. So I'm I'm here for it. Did either of you guys see the uh, the HBO Max reunion that happened last year? No, no. I would definitely encourage you to go because I think it I think it sheds light on what Fresh Prince was at just a cultural phenomenon. Because I think at least for me, for a long time, I just saw it as like Will Smith's TV show from the '90s, and it's a lot more than that. Like it affected you know the way that sitcoms view black actors. It affected the way that specifically North American audiences viewed black family sitcoms in a major way. And also, you know, Spark Will Smith is the icon that we know he is. But I think it's a more important show that sometimes we get a bit credit for. And I'm hoping that what Bel Air does, and Jabari Banks seems like an incredible young talent. He seems super fun. He seems super excited for this. And I have nothing but the best for him. I love that Will Smith and the original producers are coming back for this. I have not seen any of the work of the other showrunners. So again, this is a promising first step. I just was under the impression that this was just a fan-made thing that went to the ether. But I'm glad it's coming to be. So Noah, you want to add anything to that? Of course. I am excited to see what Jabari, having graduated from um, University of the Arts in Philadelphia uh, with a degree in musical theater, I'm excited to see what kind of musical element will be incorporated in this new rendition of Peacock's Bel Air. Um, because I just said that, it made me go, Peacock is, you know, committing to these uh, these revival projects or this revival project. And I'm, I wonder if that's going to affect its pricing model, like, all of a sudden, will we see Peacock start to have, because correct me if I'm wrong, Peacock is not charging at the moment. It, it like You can enjoy the content on Peacock with ads, but you pay to be ad-free. Am I correct? So yes, right now, Peacock with ads is free. Uh, Peacock Premium is either $5 per month or $10 per month without the ads. So you know, maybe they'll keep that. But as Peacock starts to grow, you know, Bel Air, certainly a cultural ph- phenomenon, will bring in both new and uh, returning audiences. So, you know, let's see if this is enough of a move for Peacock to um, start to apply a more aggressive pricing model or if it start, or who knows if it's going to start 
um, signing on seasons of new shows that we are familiar with from the past or what what original content are we going to see on Peacock's channel uh, being produced by Will Smith uh, I think that that is an excellent uh, or was an excellent vehicle for his career um, when it aired on NBC and I mean it's only right that the series returns with him attached to it I couldn't imagine it any different and you know excited to see this new actor Jabari let's figure out um Let's figure out how he gives this role um, some justice in Bel-Air. What a big break for the guy, too. That's so exciting. His right. first on-screen role is playing young Will Smith. And because it's on the streaming platform, I'm curious if this, I mean, just reading the article now on Pop Sugar, what kind of um, issues are they going to tackle with the format that Peacock allows for it? So is it still going to be 30 minutes uh, a very sitcom or is it going to explore um, another format where they can dive into some of the issues that were experienced from the characters that maybe they couldn't portray um, or weren't, you know, they were limited in how they could portray uh, back in the day that it aired. I think you're exactly right because this is supposed to be based on the fan made trailer, which was much more dramatic, you know, inner city drama. And, you know, the original was not shy about tackling serious issues, but this is going to be, for all intents and purposes, a serious incarnation of Fresh Prince. And I, I do wonder that same thing about what they're going to be able to tackle on this. We are going to move on to our last main topic for today. Uh, a bit of a sadder note to end the news on. Uh, we have two uh, in memoriam segments to cover for today. First up, the passing of legendary actor Ed Asner, who passed away at the age of 91 from natural causes this week. Uh, Asner was best known in the film and TV world for everything and anything. He was the president of the Screen Actors Guild for many years. But of course, for his screen presence alone, he was in everything from Up to a bunch of DC properties that I can't even name off the top of my head to Elf to, of course, the Mary Tyler Moore show. He has been in everything and everything, and he is an Hollywood icon, and we are going to discuss many things about him in just a minute. Uh, we also have the one-year passing of Chadwick Boseman, who, of course, died uh, this time last year from uh, from colon cancer. And there were a lot of tributes pouring in from the social media, particularly from Lupita Nyong'o, who, sh- who shared a really great behind-the-scenes photo and caption of him, just kind of, you know, summarizing the life and warmth that he would bring to sets. So we wanted to, of course, send our condolences to Ed Asner's family and as well as uh, Chadwick Boseman's family. And uh, I want to get started with uh, with Sam on this. Uh, let- let's start with the Ed Asner thing, just because it's more topical and upright. What did you know him uh, from uh, primarily, I should say? Yeah, so for me, I primarily knew him as, of course, most people arguably might have known him as Lou Grant from Mary, Mary Tyler Moore show. And so I knew him from that. But then I feel like I had the deepest connection with him for Up. When I first saw that movie, I just, I know that I, I saw it with my mom. And we deeply felt like it represented a lot of grandparents out there. Like you see this couple and you think of your own grandparents. And of course, we all know that that opening uh, scene that you know that married life scene and so it just it really hits home for you and he played like ed asner played this really great gruff lovable guy in anything he did and so you know he i think he really was carl Fredrickson, and that's something that i'll forever remember him by and that's why i find it very odd that his his passing happened a time with the doug days release on disney plus with you know that kind of spin-off series of carl Fredrickson's adventures with russell and doug and so it's just it just feels very coincidental. And so um, I don't know. I haven't yet to watch that, but I'm very excited to see it just in honor of, of his memory. Uh, Noel, what stands out to you to Ed Asner's career? Reviewing some of his work now, uh, unfortunately, I think that um, I was unaware that he was the legendary voice behind uh, Carl Fredrickson in Up. 
um, seeing that he plays Santa. And I wish I had that Will Ferrell voice so I could just scream, oh my God, Santa! Uh, of course, he had an impact, me as an impact on me as a child because Elf was the Christmas movie that my family put on every Christmas. Um, so sad to hear his passing. Um, I will explore some of his work after this episode. Uh, what a legendary face uh, in, in pictures. He has so many acting credits to him too. Like I think I saw a memoriam or like a tribute article on him that had like what 500 credits to his name. That that's crazy. Like what a what a career, you know. The guy started acting in the late 50s and went basically until it, literally up until his death I just read that he was planning on a series of like three one act three or four one act plays on Broadway. Wow. And he was just continuing to work and just constantly finding new challenges. Uh, for me, of course, you know, I, I'm basic, like I know him from up, there is the, you know, long halls of Pixar voice performances that we can go to, but I think it has to start and end with Ed Asner as Carl Fredrickson. He brings such warmth and depth to that role that I think could have just so easily been a visual medium. And he brings such another element to it that people have been pointing out in the last number of weeks. Of course, because I'm a nerd, I also know him from, you know, all the superhero stuff. He was J. Jonah Jameson, he was Perry White, and he might be one of the most brilliant comic castings ever with Granny Goodness uh, from Justice League Unlimited. I love him in that role. If someone, if some of you out there have not watched Justice League Unlimited where he's Granny Goodness, don't let the name dissuade you. He's amazing in it. Um, but like also some of his more dramatic work, like, you know, I know he just popped up on Cobra Kai recently, which I have not gone around to watching. I did watch Roots literally a year ago, something like that. And he is, he's damn excellent in it. Uh, and also this is a good time to point out my, um, my drunk Twitter thread from about a year and a half ago when I reviewed the 1976 classic Gus about a football playing horse and Ed Asner is the lead in that movie and he is delightful. So if, if you want a good laugh, go watch him in that. But uh, truly stuff to remember with that. That entire sentence intrigues me, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go back on your Twitter account, apparently. <laughs> I will text you the, the link to that. Awesome. Um, I do want to run over the Chadwick Boseman thing. Obviously, we were not here a year ago to be able to talk about him, but I did want to just, you know, give a couple words to him as a performer. Uh, Noah, I did want to start with you. What what was the role that brought you to chat? Was it Black Panther? And what did you think of, you know, his overall presence and overall appreciation within the industry? Of course. Um, I was familiar with the Black Panther character growing up. I played these games on my PlayStation called Ultimate Alliance. And uh, seeing the Black Panther character, I became interested in the lore, figured out that he marries Storm in the comics, and just became attracted to him enough to familiarize uh, myself with the character so that when he was teased um, or revealed in Captain America Civil War, I was screaming in the audience. And every every portrayal after the fact he never let me down and um hearing his voice uh postpartum in or postmortem i'm sorry um in what if is just uh it's bittersweet i mean everybody loves to hear him and, and especially to hear his ability to you know stretch his acting chops like hey this is how he could have been um t'challa or this is how he could have been star lord like that that was that's a treat to any and all um marvel fans and of course those fans of chadwick boseman uh you know he's the black he's the forever black panther that we all uh will love how they honor him in black panther wakanda forever i cannot wait to see for me uh, with uh, chadwick boseman i actually discovered him with 42 i have really fond memories of seeing that movie with my grandpa and it was just it was such a like a wonderful movie i think it really did jackie robinson justice i thought it was a really well-made bio film and it was just 
I don't know how to describe it. Like it was just, he brought such a, an energy to the role and he brought this inspiration that he carries in real life to um, his role as Jackie Robinson. It's something about his presence as, as a leader, I think. And so that was just really nice to see in 42. And then, you know, when he, when he debuted as T'Challa um, with Civil War, I honestly didn't even put two and two together at the time. I didn't realize they were the same actor because that was a time when you're a teenager and you don't think much of it. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I just, I just thought that it was really exciting to have him for the time that we did because he, he did wonderful things between 42 and even the five bloods and of course T'Challa. And so that was like what Noah was saying. Um, it was just, super super nice hearing him in what if and i'm glad that we were able to hear him for one more time we briefly mentioned this last episode about hearing chadwick in what if and it is a beautiful thing to be able to hear i i will make this relatively quick i you know i like you i discovered him in 42 and i there's that thing of like i knew he was going to be a star and like i knew there was something and then seeing him and get on up and seeing him and all these other things and by the time he does reach black panther he was not only playing icons, he was embodying who they were and giving them substance and depth and complexity, but also doing something like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom to end off his career. And it was just, and soaring with charisma and just so much raw talent and he will absolutely be missed. All right, we're going to move on to the new releases this week. Big week this week, because it's, again, Marvel's second outing in theaters this year. Uh, we have Shang-Chi and the Legends of the Ten Rings this year. Uh, this week, I should say. Uh, second of this year. You know what I'm talking about. Shang-Chi is here. We're all excited. We all saw it. I'm going to run down what it's about a little bit. Actually, that's a lie, because Sam actually reviewed it. So I'm going to let her run down what it's about in the best way she can. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. So, yeah, I um, was Shang-Chi. It is actually making history because it is the first Marvel movie that's led by a like an Asian lead. Basically, this movie is heavily focused on um, like fighting art, uh, martial arts fighting styles in the film, and it, it, it you know without spoiling anything, it's basically about a guy who is trying to discover more about himself after growing up in conflicting um, with conflicting feelings about, you know, his family, his upbringing and who he is as a person. So something happens in his life in San Francisco where he's working as a valet and it forces him to face some of his fears in the past and grapple with who he has become and who he is. Uh, and that's putting it generally without any spoilers, but it basically is this epic adventure uh, where he goes to try to stop his dad from making this huge mistake that could really put the world at risk because of course this is a Marvel movie and the world is always in danger. So the superheroes have to come in and fight. Um, but that's kind of like a general summary of Shang-Chi. Uh, I hope that helped and anybody please feel free to add to that too. Uh, totally does. I would just add some behind the scenes details. Uh, this is directed by Dustin Daniel Cretton, who is of course responsible for movies like Short Term 12 and Just Mercy from a couple of years ago. Uh, it is written by David Callahan, who is of course probably best known for his work on the Expendables movie, as well as Zombieland Double Tap, which I actually really like. Uh, and of course stars uh, the, I would call them all stars at this point. You've got Simu Liu uh, as Shang-Chi himself. You also have uh, Aquafina, the great Tony Lung in there. Uh, Michelle Yao pops in there, as well as, I am forgetting, Fala Chen, who plays, um, who plays the uh, mother of Shang-Chi, I should say. Along with a couple other surprises in there that we won't entirely spoil. I, I think we'll go this probably mostly spoiled. Uh, Sam, you reviewed this, and I want to start out with you. Uh, general thoughts on Shang-Chi, your general expectations for going to Shang-Chi, first of all, and then your actual you know, thoughts about the movie as a whole. 
Yeah, yeah. So my general expectations for it were very above normal, as, and, and that's a good thing. Like I, I was really excited about this movie, and and just because it means a lot to me as an Asian American to see a bit of representation on screen, it, it meant a lot to me to see Shang Chi when it was first announced, and now it's in theaters. Um, so I, I was really excited about it, and then once the trailer dropped, I was very excited because it looked like the fight scenes were heavily Hong Kong influenced, if that makes any sense, where you have like the elaborate turns and the big wide jump stances and things like that. Like it felt like that's what it was going to be. It was heavily Hong Kong, Hong Kong action based, if that makes sense. And so, um, yeah, otherwise I didn't really know what else to expect. And so I actually had never seen Simu Liu's previous experience, like Kim's convenience before. So this is just, you know, he's a fresh face for me. And what I ended up walking away with was it is a phenomenal movie. I had so much fun with it. And so far it is my favorite Marvel movie. Like it's, it's up there in like, I'd say probably like the top five for me. And so I just think it's because of a combination of who Shang-Chi is and his adventure in discovering himself the visuals are phenomenal in this, like all the visual effects and cinematography, they're really fun. And um, it's just, in my opinion, it was just, I don't know, it was a blast to watch. Uh, it did have a little um, hiccups there for me, mostly in in the fact that it is a, a Marvel movie. So it does fall into the trap of some Marvel stereotypes where you put in some humor and it takes you out of the seriousness of a situation. And for me, that was always a personal pet peeve that Marvel would do. And so they did it a couple times in this. And of course, the whole culmination of a Marvel movie leads up to giant fight scenes. And so that's basically what the last quarter of the movie was. As, or, you know, they're filled with big fight scenes. But I think they differ from the others because when it comes to some Marvel scenes, I kind of forget the fight scenes because they're all just bright lights, lots of fighting different sides are fighting each other good versus bad and for me this was a memorable fight when you see it and and it, it really there's a lot more at stake than just the world it's more about shang chi's personal demons too uh noah moving on to you uh your thoughts going to shang chi and what do you think shang chi and the legend of the ten rings uh immediately what are those ten rings but as soon as i saw the trailer i knew what they were they're just like these cool extension type relics or something that just has immense power and force and we learn in the movie that it can actually grant immortality um i was immediately drawn to shang chi because of the asian representation that we saw both on and off screen uh simulu i am not familiar with um but definitely happy to now have his face ingrained in my memory as this legendary character um I think I was taking on an adventure that I wasn't expecting to be so fantastical. Um, like Sam said, the mar- the uh, fighting looked heavily inspired by like traditional martial arts in movies. Um, and it was new for Marvel. And, it, and I think it was the, the best direction it could have taken for um, this next phase of, of what audiences expect and what audiences need to be surprised by. And it's by action that, you know, looks so so choreographed to the point where it looks like art some fighting sequences are literally dances and i just you you stay with those scenes and it moves you and it's so much emotion that i think uh i haven't gotten out of some of the marvel pictures and so that's why uh, i'm definitely placing it high on my marvel list this movie kind of gave me a realization that i'm much more of a fan of the fantastical settings for marvel i think doctor strange is high on my list the guardians movies too uh, Guardians isn't so fantastical, but I love to be, you know, not in a city or just like not on 
the Earth's landscapes that we that we know from all of the other Marvel movies. I think there's like this legendary, um, can I call it a legendary land or like this place that Shang-Chi ultimately um, has it has in its third act. I think that's apt. Yeah, I think it is too. I agree. And so visiting there and just living there for like the last, you know, 40 minutes of the movie, I was completely enthralled by all of, you know, all of the things to experience there without spoiling um, what it is that you can experience. I want to see more of that. I hope phase four brings us the, the shiny, the colorful, you know, the, the not so nitty gritty, because that's, that's what I love about these characters. And that's what I love about these settings that we get to explore. Um, I, I guess the last point I want to make is that uh, (laughs) we do get a cameo. I think that is totally, uh, it's just amazing. (laughs) We get a cameo who, uh, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to talk about it without like saying the name or like just going into detail. But uh, for any fans of the Doctor Strange universe, go ahead and put this movie on the top of your radar because um, you'll be excited for who you get to see interact with Shang-Chi. I'm so ready for how his power level stacks up against the rest of the Avengers. And I'm curious to see um, how Aquafina's character can grow uh, in her position as well. I will admit, going into this, I knew, I won't point it, but just, I knew nothing about Shang-Chi. I, I barely knew anything about the character besides the Mandarin comparisons and that he, was, he had a solo running series in the comics at the time. I wasn't reading it. I heard it was good. But it was also that thing of, you know, beyond all that, it's the idea of Asian representation. It's the idea of someone like Destin Daniel Cretton getting to do a Marvel movie, which is awesome. Again, there are too many of you who haven't seen Short Term 12, and you should absolutely see Short Term 12. It's amazing. Um, so I was really happy to see that. And Simu Lu just seemed so into the idea of this character and so into the idea of you know, bringing these kind of family emotions into this, much like Black Widow did just you know a few months ago. And I think I am actually on the same level right now as I am Black Widow. And the, the unfortunate thing is, I can pinpoint things about Black Widow that I didn't like, and I can pinpoint where those detriment the movie to me. Shang-Chi, for whatever reason, I can pinpoint the things I don't like, but for whatever reason, I can't bring it up to the thing that everyone else is seeing in it that, you know, is the love and adoration of it. For whatever reason, I just don't see that yet. And I think what it might have been is that I was absolutely exhausted last night when I saw it, but, but I think when I saw I think I was just trying to get into it, and I was for a long time. I think I need to see it again and I will you know, fully grow to love it. But beyond that, uh, the acting across the board, I think is excellent in this. I think Simu Liu does excellent work in bringing you into Sean's world. I put air quotes around that, you know, if it, it's early in the movie, it's not a spoiler, um, but in, into Shang-Chi's world and his struggles and the thing that, the thing that divides his family and divides it so deeply and very aesthetic wise, I think is very interesting. Uh, Tony Lung is an amazing villain in this. I, I mean, talk about redefining the character of who the Mandarin is into what Wen Wu represents in this. Uh, Sam, I saw you on mute. Do you have something to add to that? No, it's just because he he stole the show. That's all I'm. I, that's all I was going to add was my two cents of yes, he stole the show and he is fantastic. Same with I, I, Michelle Yeoh when she showed up too. <laughs> yes, and the weird thing is, is that again for all the promotion we haven't really seen tony lung do a lot of promotion for this so i was almost curious of like oh are they hiding him they are not hiding him and aquafina who i think when she was announced i, I thought like oh this is you know gonna be the comedic really because the farewell hadn't come out yet and we all still kind of thought of her as like you know oceans eight and everything she's great in this and i love how they give her an actual you know 
growth of character. And I love the way that they play her and Shang-Chi's relationship up. It's not, you know, completely romantic. It's not completely platonic. It's somewhere weird in the middle that like really good friends is, it feels totally believable. I love Joel West's score. I love some of the cinematography that, you know, some of the film brings. I will fully admit the visual effects get to be a bit much in the third act. Uh, I think it gets a bit out of hand with himself and, you know, credit to, you know, what Cretton is trying to do with this. I love the idea of, you know, bringing that kind of East Asian mythology to it. I love the idea of, you know, souls and, you know, uh, like the, the sort of dragon mythology and imagery that they're bringing into it. It's awesome. And I won't spoil everything. I will just say that it gets a little bit out of hand. I like what they do with his sister. I wish they had brought it in earlier and that it tuned into the flashbacks a bit more because I think what they do with the flash, there are several flashbacks in the movie that go back to, you know, Shang-Chi's time as a younger child in, you know, with, uh, with Tony Lung's character. And I, I wanted to love that part, but I feel like they sometimes come in a bit too fast and furious and a bit too, a bit too loose with the emotion of it all. So when we do get back to the present day scenes, I'm totally enthralled, but I felt like they were more of almost like fever dreams almost where they don't totally make sense. Like you're trying to decide, oh, whose point of view is this exactly from? Is this Cretton's point of view? Is it, you know, uh, uh, Shang-Chi's point of view? These are mostly nitpicks. Like they did not detract from my love in the movie. It's just that thing of that extra level of fun that everyone seems to be having with it. I didn't get this first time, but I am more than happy to revisit it. I would recommend this to everyone. I think it's a blast to watch. And yeah, this is a great addition to Marvel canon. I hope we see more of it. And then real quick too, like Noah, you made a good point that kind of opened my eyes a bit. Like I'm not trying to be Martin Scorsese here. So (laughs) Marvel movies are still very valid. But like I said earlier, there are some tropes that come with the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I'm not always a fan of. And so I think that's why the movies that are up there for me and my top favorite Marvel movies are the ones that do take me out of the cinematic universe for a moment, like Black Panther, um, this, uh, this one with Shang-Chi, um, Doctor Strange. Like they're, they're the ones where they bring me somewhere that feels so different, so different from our own world, if you will. And so I, you, know, you really brought up a good point there and kind of opened my eyes to, hey, that's probably why those are in my like, top, top 10, top five movies through Marvel. So anyways... I gotta add, there is redemption for a certain Marvel character that you will never see coming. And yes. when it's here, when it arrives, you never want it to leave. It is, I think, the the best thing they could have done with something that was as butchered as that character was in X movie that I'm not going to tell you. Um, but yes, expect a redemption from a character that is all but forgotten and you'll leave the movie uh, absolutely loving them. And then also as a side note, there are two scenes that you should stick around for as well. One mid-credit and one end-credit scene. And I, I would argue that first mid-credit, because I heard a lot of people going to the, it's super important. I'm like, really? The Shang-Chi one? Yeah, it's actually really important. Um, so we'll see where that lands. But yeah, I, I think overall, we're all genuinely positive on this. Overall, I believe I gave it a nine, uh, if I'm remembering my Odyssey online review correctly. So check that out, by the way. Um, but yeah, that's I, it is a nine for me and still stands that way. Nine. Anything to add to that or just nine? Absolutely nine. An absolute. That's all I have to say. You know what? Put that on the Rotten Tomatoes queue. We'll get that done. (laughs) (laughs) If I have to go, if I have to go just quick rating on it, I'm going eight out of 10. I think this is really well done. I cannot wait to see what Destiny Daniel Cretton does next. Having worked on a blockbuster, the scale of this, having worked with a cast like this, um, I have nothing but faith in the guy and I have nothing but faith in this character. Like I think, Simu Lu can become one of those pillars of the MCU if they decide to go this route. 
I'm excited to see more. I think this is a great project. It's a great solo adventure film. And it goes towards Marvel's idea of introducing new characters to general audiences that people can generally beloved for decades if they have to. And I love that idea. And, you know, speaking of um, family problems, you know who has family problems? Cinderella. Cinderella <laughs> usually does. And so I believe Brandon reviewed Cinderella, too, if you wanted to move on to the next topic. Cinderella. This is, of course, the newest project from Kay Cannon, of course, best known for her work on the Pitch Perfect movie. She also made her directorial debut with uh, Blockers just a couple of years ago. I hope we get to talk about that on our directorial debut segment very soon. Uh, this is, of course, a retelling of the classic Cinderella story, of course, based on the uh, Charles Perrault uh, fairy tale. Uh, and it stars Camilla Cabello as Ella, a.k.a. Cinderella. You all know the story of this. She is a young girl. She wants to be a fashion designer someday. Uh, that is exaggerated in this movie quite a bit. Um, she lives with her stepmother, played by Adina Menzel, and her two evil stepsisters. It's a bit ambiguous. Um, but yeah, she runs into this guy who turns out to be the prince. Uh, played by Nicholas Galatine. Uh, she runs into him. They kind of have a bit of a fling. She wants to go to the ball. Things happen. There's magic involved. This is the classic Cinderella story. I don't need to explain, you know, all the details, but it is essentially Ella's journey about, you know, discovering and finding herself and, you know, finding the self-confidence herself to, you know, rise above the challenges that have become there and potentially pursue a relationship with this, uh, with this dashing young man as well. I love Kay Cannon's work. I love the Perfect Perfect movie. I love what she, I don't love the other two, but I love what, you know, she tries to add into those. I love Blockers. I think that is a amazing subversion of raunchy teen comedies that she was able to do so well. And so she is the only reason why I was looking forward to this because I don't know about you guys. I don't love Camila Cabello. Uh, I've never liked her as a singer. I've never liked her with Fifth Harmony. And I didn't have full faith in her as a, you know, quote unquote, romantic teen lead. Uh, and unfortunately, I was proven really right, and I hate sounding cynical about this, so forgive me for the next few minutes. Uh, there are moments of this movie that really do work. Primarily Billy Porter, who is in there for maybe five minutes and is wonderful. Uh, I truly loved his work in this. He, if there's the, uh, the Twitter meme of like, oh, this person gets the assignment, Billy Porter gets the assignment. Uh, he absolutely knows how to you know, utilize the screenplay and utilize the tone and what this film was trying to go for. There are also some really funny jokes in there. And you know what? Credit to Camilla Cabello where it's due. She does not nail the dramatic stuff at all, but she's actually not terrible at some of the sort of, you know, klutzier kind of physical comedy elements of what Cinderella's character is trying to do. And I was really impressed by just that working on its own. And there are one or two musical numbers that I do think actually work to drive the story. This is a jukebox musical, so it's a lot of, you know, semi-modern pop and you know alternative rock songs and stuff like that uh there's one or two that work uh, i don't think the original songs work at all but i think some of the covers kind of work at the end of the day though it feels way too glossy and i hate to blame this on k cannon i hate to blame this on james corden who is actually one of the executive producers on this and features in a small role in the movie there's a sheen over it that is really kind of icky at the end of the day i don't think it can really get across the depth of his message very successfully especially with actors who are either A, not cut up to this, or two, just not given enough material. Adina Menzel is a perfect example. She is trying to make the stepmother much more complex, much like, you know, Kate Blanchett did in the 2015 version, but I don't think she's able to nail that tone. I don't think Pierce Brosnan is able to really nail that tone, although he does get one moment in this movie that might be one of the funniest things I've seen all year, so I have to praise him for that. But as far as character-wise, not really. The prince is fine, you know, the stepsisters are fine. Everything about it is kind of, eh, it's there. 
Overall, I give Cinderella, I give it a 3.5. I hate to sound that cynical, but there's very little about it that I actually genuinely liked. And I think there's too little of it too infrequently. And for a story like this, that I think is trying to be so much more, and it is trying to be, you know, the, you know, the positive reinforced uh, Cinderella story that I think it wants to be. I don't think it's up to the task. I know Kay Cannon has this in her. I know that Camilla Cabello seems to have talent as an actress, and I want to see where she can go with this in smaller capacities, but this is not the avenue to do it. If if you have Amazon Prime and it's free to watch, go nuts. I'm not going to tell you to avoid it, but I would simply tell you there are plenty of other Cinderella movies that you can watch, so there's that. Best Cinderella, go. Mine, Hilary Duff, A Cinderella Story. Chad Michael Murray, too. The nonsensical... Cinderella with Whoopi Goldberg and Victor Garber and <laughs> the the fact that they I, I don't know like I, I loved how nonsensical it was and that one I just I have a lot of nostalgia attached to it so that's the only reason why I like it it's not the best but it's the one that's immediately coming to my mind which is the 2015 version I think Kenneth Branagh did wonders with that I think Lily James is one of the great talents of our generation I think that film did everything so right to take the animated version and update it in all of the right ways. Plus it's beautiful. Um, so there's that too. This speaks okay. wonders to how many renditions of Cinderella there are out there in the world. So. Truly. Yeah. And, and how much uh, Pierce Brosnan cannot get away from musicals ever <laughs> since Mamma Mia. So rip. <laughs> you know what? The funny thing is that scene I was telling you about that is during his one musical number. <laughs> awesome. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I would just tell you to look that up. I'll, I'll see if I can find it, but neither here or there. We are going to move on to our last review, which is Candyman. Noah, can you tell us about the person who I'm not going to say their name five times because that would be scary. <laughs> well, you're, oh, okay. Yes, of course. I was going to say you're already at two, but nah, you've actually only mentioned it one. Thank you, Brandon. Candyman, the 2021 kind of sequel, uh, kind of a new tale for the new generation of fans who are either unfamiliar or returning to it. Um, it has a beautiful, wonderful cast that all of you should be familiar with by now, uh, starring Yaya Abdul-Mateen, who was in um, Westworld, as well as attached to other projects. You also have Tayana Paris, and she is our wonderful Monica Rambeau in the WandaVision series. And we're going to be seeing her in the movie The Marvels. And The Marvels is actually another production where Tayana Paris and Candyman's director, uh, we'll be working together again, Candyman's director and the Marvel's director. Her name is Nia DaCosta. And actually, we owe her some flowers because this marks history just like Shang-Chi. Uh, this is the first number one film directed by a Black woman. So kudos to that. Uh, congratulations, Nia DaCosta. Uh, we also have Coleman Domingo in this Candyman movie. And so now let's get into the movie. Um, I'll be honest, it was not a hit for me. I think that... Immediately, what attracted me was um, the reimagining of this cult classic tale, uh, the cast, of course, and then the length. It's an hour and a half. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to jump in there, eat this up, never look at a mirror again, and then leave. I was intrigued by how they were going to portray this, you know, mirror demon I think that this movie is gruesome and it needs to be, you know, a, a, a figure that is almost like a demon that appears in the mirror after you say their name five times. I want to know that when they show up, they're here to wreck hell. And what immediately intrigued me was that this was going to take place around the art scene. Our uh, main actor, Yaya, uh, is playing an artist and 
it almost gives me like a velvet buzzsaw vibe because this work is displayed in a gallery at a show. The show is actually curated by his partner, um, portrayed by Tiana Paris. And so uh, you get their dynamic where one is really just um, diving into the work of Candyman. In the movie, Candyman is a legend. And uh, the history goes that he would offer candy to the children of a Chicago neighborhood, um, now gentrified in modern day. And so uh, looking at the past, there was candy found with razor blades in it. And so when police had to look towards um, a suspect, of course, they immediately went to this um, mainly uh, Black neighborhood, and they uh, targeted a man solely based on the color of his skin. So uh, police brutality is at the center of this film, uh, and the animosity of police towards the Black community really manifests itself into this um, this entity, this <clears throat> who this candy man became, which is nothing but the rage. He takes his revenge on those who look into the mirror and say, Candyman, five times. Is anybody counting for me? Am I at like four? Okay. And so I, I think you're at four. <laughs> so, Be very careful what you do next. I know. I know. The new setting of the artistic scene, uh, we have artists juggling um, whether they believe in the legend or not. Um, it does it, it does the scares very well. I think that it's hard for me to talk about. I'm going to make this a spoiler review, okay? So if you continue listening, keep in mind, I'm going to spoil it. I'm going to spoil certain aspects of it because I think I have to in order to uh, give my full opinion. So for one, this gets almost the invisible man treatment, whereas Candyman being a creature or being uh, an evil that uh, manifests itself through a mirror and then appears behind you to kill you, in the movie, he's always invisible. You know, he's never seen. And so that immediately lost me because I'm familiar with the original. I haven't seen it in some years, so I couldn't tell you if he actually exists outside of the Mirrorverse in the original. But here, the only time you really see Candyman himself is either A, in a reflection, or B, um, you know, towards the film's third act. Well, that immediately lost me because I, for one, it's hard for me to enjoy a fight sequence if I only see one party. And so that led to maybe uh, one woman gets like levitated, hung by the throat. Another person is gashed and dragged by somebody that we can't see. And I think that that's just, it's, it's tough for me to really believe in the scene or get lost in the scene. Like I want to, like I need to for uh, these horrors. Uh, we can even talk on last week, I was reviewing The Night House. And in that movie, you don't see the, the evil presence but there's no, there's no fighting them. There's no throwing punches and receiving blows from something that you can't see because I think it just looks a little sloppy. Um, towards the film's third act, it kind of, uh, we start to focus instead of on Yaya slowly becoming more and more obsessed with this project for his art, almost losing himself to the Candyman. I want to say, like, it's so hard. The Candyman, I can't say creature. The, can- the Candyman is how I'm going to say it. And so Tiana Paris is, plays his partner and starts to um, lose confidence in his sanity. But then she's knocked out. And suddenly we're in this third act where there's like a ritual being performed or there's like some kind of like fanatic of Candyman who's trying to bring him back. Like, it was me watching it in the movie theaters. I was staring at it and kind of just going, what? Like, where did this go? Like it had such, 
it had such a great windup and I was waiting for what that third act was going to be. And then it kind of nosedived for me. And um, as, as real as the problem of police brutality is, um, although I was unprepared for it, it's definitely a message that uh, cannot go understated. So it's, I didn't mind seeing it in this movie. Uh, however, when it when it's incorporated with the elements of Candyman, I was just, I, I, I had problems with the way that they wrapped it up. It, it just wasn't a tight finish to me. It almost it felt rushed. And maybe I can look into whether uh, the pandemic affected production. I, I did want to ask you just one thing real quick. Uh, Tony okay. Todd, of course, comes back from the original for this and from the original sequels as well. Is his presence more known about this to original fans or is he more of, you know, uh, or is he more of a Luke Skywalker and Force Awakens situation? Spoiler alert, Luke Skywalker, you get his face and then he's gone. And it's right before the credits hit. Really? Yes. But uh, unfortunately, this isn't on my high recommendation list. Uh, Out of 10, I'd probably give it around a five and a half to six because I did admire the portrayals and the scares are good. Any original fan of the uh, 1992 Candyman should definitely come back and see this. There are some characters who make a return, but unfortunately it lost me as a new audience member. Now, great to hear that, Noah. Thanks for just all, all you had to share about Candyman, especially because you're our, our fellow horror resident here. So it's, it's nice to hear, um, you know, just your thoughts on anything horror related. Thank you. And Jordan Peele was on this project. So I was so ready for like mm-hmm. the next, um, you know, we, we know him from uh, Get Out. We know him from us and on the upcoming Them. I'm just kidding. I don't know the name of the series. Uh, there is a series called Them, but I'm so ready for his next movie that just looks bonkers. But uh, unfortunately, this one, must, this one let me down in the end. Uh, it, it's Nope, by the way. Say again. Nope. Oh, it's called Nope? Okay. Yes, that, that's Jordan Peele's next movie. That's how the we're going to Nope. <laughs> All right, so we are back to the Streaming Wars TV nonsense segment that we will, you know, come up with a definitive name for at some point. Uh, that's the official name, by the way, Streaming Wars. <laughs> that is the name. <laughs> TV All nonsense. Right. I'm a fan. By your teachers. TV Our nonsense. spinoff podcast. <laughs> yes, eventually. The, the empire is growing. Um, <laughs> We, uh, we were actually off last week, so we actually have two episodes of Marvel What If to cover this week, and we actually are covering White Girl just uh, coming up relatively soon, but we are going to talk about What If just because we've all seen it and we've, have, ha- we've made a habit, so to speak, of talking about it. We're going to be starting with episode three, What If the World Lost Its Mightiest Heroes? Uh, this takes place in the week-long period between uh, Iron Man 2, Thor, and the Incredible Hulk, which, if you do not know, they actually take place just in about a week worth of each other. That's how short that original phase one time span actually was. This essentially follows the question of, what if those events went horribly wrong? And there was a traitor within the midst of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Nick Fury and Black Widow, uh, voiced by Samuel L. Jackson returning from the films, and Lake Bell, actually, who comes in to replace uh, Scarlett Johansson in this. Uh, they essentially have to track down this person who is targeting members of the Avengers Initiative. So Tony Stark and Bruce Banner, uh, Quint Barton, all that goes down. There's a mystery murderer afoot, and it's essentially sort of a Winter Soldier-style conspiracy thrill in terms of that. Uh, some really great cameos in there that we will try, hopefully not to spoil if we can. Uh, Sam, I want to get started with you. Uh, we've all kind of uh, gone over our thoughts on the last two, on the last two episodes of what I should say. Uh, mostly positive overall. Has that streak continued with this? Yeah, so far, in my opinion, it has. And it's especially because, you know, like I, I mentioned in the last podcast that I wasn't that thrilled with the second one, but this third one was so interesting because right away it captures your attention 
So, you know, because it's now been quite a while since that third episode has been out, I am going to spoil it. It's just insane. It's basically like everybody dies. It's like seeing Super Smash Brothers all over again when Kirby was free reign and everybody else died around him. So, you know, this third one was in- insane. And so, I, in my opinion, it, it picked it back up for me. I was just really intrigued to see where this story was going. And I think that some people will find it really surprising, especially when you see who's behind the madness in this third episode, too. When it came to the third episode, I would put it at the bottom of my rankings, unfortunately. It didn't take me anywhere new. And the characters that we saw weren't new versions of the character that we knew, save for one um, revealed at the very end. And although I did enjoy <laughs> i mean who i did enjoy seeing the beloved characters just drop like flies um it, the whole story was moving a bit too fast for me to spend time with any uh major death or major loss um the fact that black widow and nick fury helmed this episode i was very um open to and i i admired that i enjoyed it um samuel jackson and lake bell they were excellent um and we even get some good scenes with bruce banner and the hulk but I think just my my short my short spiel is uh the villain that they show us Hank Pym I was definitely not on board with I was like wait this he he like has he been over has he been buffed since the last time we've seen him like this is not a character that I understood could be so evil but I guess that's that's where what if wants to take us is you know forget your understandings of the characters and their um, potential before and believe in what we show you. But unfortunately for me, I, I couldn't be on board with that. I couldn't believe it. Um, always love Jeffrey Wright as the watcher, his voice soothing, lullabolic. And I'm going to take a nap now. You, Brandon? I'm looking up while I'm talking about this. If lullabolic is a word. <laughs> I love me. that word. I it's mean, I gotta hope be it's a word. It's, it's gotta, gotta be real. real. I hope you lie to me. It's definitely a word I'm saying that I'm shaking my head. Let's keep using it. If it is, you've invented it and you deserve all the royalties. For me, I I know I've seen I saw a lot of people in the last two weeks trying to be like, oh, this was, you know, the weakest of the three. Like I didn't like this as much as Captain Carter. And I, I don't know. I think because to me, what if I always looked at was Marvel's, you know, sandbox. Like, do any and I mentioned this last week of like do anything and try it. Because it really doesn't matter in the end it's it's what ifs it's things that could be neat to me i would much prefer something and i like the captain carter episode fine i did it's my least favorite of the four that we'll talk about later but to me i think this works better because it's more ambitious it tries more things it tries to switch up characters that we already known and i wasn't looking for what if to be you know the thing that i knew and so in that case i was interested i will say i was expecting the reveal to be scott not hank like, I was expecting it to be like, oh, Scott doesn't have, like, you know, the heroic ambitions anymore. So he goes full-blown, you know, criminal mastermind. And I thought that could be cool. But then, no, it's, you know, Hank's just gone crazy, I guess. And that's just a pivot that I didn't expect. Um, I don't love how they handle that. But you know what? We get that amazing team up between Fury and Loki. And that almost makes it worth it. Because those are two characters who I I love the idea of interacting. And I love the the sort of playoff that Tom Hiddleston and Samuel L. Jackson have off of one another, both in this and, you know, in the original films, obviously. Um, I will say as far as shocking things go, uh, the Hulk, like that is. That was intense. I couldn't believe they did that. Um, I know this is, it's not a kid's show per se, but kids will be watching this. And like, I don't know how they'll be able to process that. Um, But yeah, like I, I like the whole, you know, espionage angle of, you know, 
Fury and Widow, you know, often the world solving crimes, like that whole like 70s aesthetic that made Winter Soldier so great. Um, and again, Lake Dale actually does a great job of replacing uh, Scarlett Johansson on this. I'd really like to see her come back at some point. Um, and a lot of the other characters are, you know, fine. Like I like what they do with, you know, Thor and again, like, the Asgard stuff. At the end of the day, you're right. It's a bit of a muddled mess, but I think it's a very interesting muddled mess. And I, I was definitely curious to see how you could take those three films in particular and condense them all. So I admire it to a degree. Yeah, I totally respect that too. Just to add to what Brandon's saying on your opinion, Noah, that I respect that too. Cause something I've found with all of these, what if episodes, they fly, like they go by so quickly, which That's- makes sense with its runtime, which they're about what, 25 minutes, 30. So yeah. it's like, that makes sense. But for some reason that third episode did particularly feel very fast because they were dropping like flies. So yeah, I totally understand and respect that too. Brandon says, you know, how are kids going to watch this looking at the Hulk popcorn club plot devices? How are kids going to watch episode four? What if, oh, I'm sorry. Are we going to rank now or can I dive into this fourth episode? Let's dive into four because we do have a That was a good transition. So I think, yeah, we'll keep it. What if Stephen Strange, the doctor, lost his heart instead of his hands? Take it away, one of you. Oh my gosh. That hit me in the feels. That that entire episode. The that fact that Rachel really- McAdams came back too, I'm like, and I got to hear her voice just, and by the way, when they say heart, I mean, it, it's not his real heart, it's his love, and it happens again and again. You're talking about Rachel McAdams, Leslie Bibb came back after a five-minute scene in the first Iron Man, like, that's how <laughs> committed they are. <laughs> um, yeah, so what if Doctor Strange lost his heart instead of his hands? This is the fourth What If episode. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch returns to, uh, once again, voice Stephen Strange. And it basically tackles the uh, the car accident from the first movie. But instead uh, of just being himself, it's Christine Palmer, again, voiced by Rachel McAdams, as Noah pointed out. She's in the car with him and she dies. And Stephen Strange is essentially, essentially turned into a downward spiral. He looks for anything and every reason to be able to do, to be able to fix her death. The events of the film of Doctor Strange still progress as normal. He finds Kamartaj. He trains up to the Ancient One, once again, by, once again, voiced by Tilda Swinton, I should say. But unlike in the movie, he doesn't move on. Uh, and he tries using the Time Stone to continually rewrite things. Uh, he finds an ancient library, uh, not sided not with the Ancient One, to try and develop his magic powers even more, to progressively darker, scarier, and more depressing results. No, I want to start out with you in this because this is big into horror atmosphere. I think I would be shocked if Scott Derrickson or Sam Raimi did not have any input on this because it feels like their signatures are all over this. But I want to get your thoughts on this uh, just in context of, you know, the original Doctor Strange movie, but also in terms of this story. Um, The visuals in this episode are unlike anything we've seen in the MCU. It is Stephen Strange looking, Stephen Strange looking diabolical as he's manifesting all this power from places that, you know, he's informed by the ancient one that you do not draw power from. And, you know, he, he's reluctant to believe that because of how much Christine mattered to him. And uh, if we see just an inkling of this in the multiverse of madness, because of Sam Remy has mentioned that it's going to be more of a horror uh, feel for Marvel. I'm sprinting to the movie theater. This is, I think uh, the what if episodes that I was not waiting for, because I have appreciated um, majority of them, but this was the what if episode that blindsided me in the best of ways um there are uh, there are enough twists and turns I think for me not to get lost in the story um and still be surprised by the end of it and speaking of the end of it 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 (laughs) 
there's only so many uh movies and tv shows that really give you that um dreadful feeling of the end and something just you know this is this is where it wraps and there's nothing left and so when you watch the episode you'll understand what i'm talking about but i i i completely loved that feeling and i love that they did it in in that way um what i want to mention too is that this episode covers um it actually defines something for the mcu and as we you know have we all as we have all watched Endgame, Infinity War, we know that time travel is kind of something, you know, when we get into quantum mania, we're probably going to be talking about time travel all the time, all time, always. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> what this episode does is it defines for us what an absolute point is. And that's actually, it plays very important uh, for Dr. Strange and the ancient one, because they really define it as something that cannot be changed throughout time because it, it defines what a future outcome will be. And I think that, they're starting to establish some rules with what they can do in their time travel. And I like to see that because they may think, no, there's no way they think that fans are going to forget it because Marvel is so calculated. Um, I'm writing that down in my notebooks. I'm not forgetting it because as we explore future movies and future scenarios involving time, I'm going to remember that. And I will criticize the hell out of them if they forget it, because I, I, I love that they're establishing rules for this new, this new vehicle that they can take, which is, you know, that time travel. Uh, Sam. So this was actually my favorite episode from What If so far. And it's because of similar reasons to Noah. It really blindsided me. I, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't look ahead of time like, oh, what's this episode about? But then, um, you know, I was really excited to see. There was something about how emotionally raw this episode was that got me. And so I, you know, something else that also blindsided me were like, Brandon was saying in like the the quick review of what this is about you you know that Christina dies and so to see that multiple ways and multiple versions you know because there we get to a scene like that and and you know debating on the what ifs like what if something changed that that blew me away I was sitting in silence like with my jaw on the floor and so it's just you know scenes like that are so fascinating to me and then you just they did a really great job of unpacking a lot of Dr. Strange and this version of him, which I believe is Dr. Strange Supreme. And so it's just like, you know, it's very interesting to see, see Marvel unpack that version of him and, and his character unraveling before our eyes in within, you know, 25, 30 minutes. So no, I definitely recommend it. And I was really excited to see it. I have one negative about this, which is solely that I think, in the original film, you know, Christine is not the most well-developed character in that original movie, but I felt that her relationship and her dynamic with Steven was so fleshed out and so dynamic within that. And the way that Benedict and Rachel work off each other in that movie, I think, is one of the reasons why I think their romance kind of works in there. Here, it's very much played, I want to say a bit like noir-like, where it's, you know, the relationship is there, they clearly care about each other, but we don't get that much time to explore that. And the main focus is on the guy which I think is a little bit male-centric to take down, but I get it. There's only so much time you can explore in these. We have to move on from that. I get it. Other than that, everything about this is great. Noah, you nailed on the head. It's atmospheric episode almost of this thing of, well, what's going to be the thing that that really turns Steven over the edge? And I also think, and I, I tweeted out about this, that I think this really nails the imperfections of Stephen Strange as a character, because so often we think of, you know, like I remember when the No Way Home uh, trailer came out that we actually didn't get to talk about, 
you know, people were saying like that Stephen wouldn't do that. You know, he's responsible. And I'm like, is he though? Like he's kind of arrogant. Like that's kind of the, one of the things that appeals so much about the character from the original movie into the, you know, the infinity saga, so to speak. And I think this really goes to tackle like, well, what happens if he doesn't have that responsibility? What happens if, or, or if that responsibility gets corrupted by, you know, every responsibility that becomes with Sorcerer Supreme. I love how they use the ancient one in this episode. I think the final battle is a bit too quick. I think you could have had, you, you could have added maybe one to two more minutes onto that and nothing would have changed, but all of it, and I mean all of it, is made up for the ending. It's one of, this is one of the best endings to any Marvel property I, I have ever seen. It's dark, it's sad, it leaves you hollow, but at the same time, it's incredibly satisfying. And those words that, you know, the Watcher says at the end are, they're haunting. And it is that thing of, you know, just, it feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Like, if we're comparing this to Twilight Zone, this is the Twilight Zoniest, if that's a word. So I, I was really impressed by this. Uh, and I want to get your guys' ratings as to uh, where you put, where you stand the first four episodes of What If. It does, you know, just as a real quick side note, too, it just does end in such a profound silence. And that also shocked me, too. Like you said, like that end quote that the Watcher said. Yeah, it really wrapped up wonderfully with that. So, yeah, I was just supporting what you were saying. But to respond to your question about the the ranking. So what are we just ranking the first four? So just from best to so to rank what you were, uh, what the episodes we have so far. So from best to worst for me personally, four best one, three, second best, first episode, third, and then the, the second one last. For me, it's, you know, I already went in this in the last episode, but I just felt like episode two is trying to throw in so many references that it distracted me from what was really going on. So that's just primarily my reason for putting it there. Uh, Noah? I would go, and this, this I think for most of us, or for all of us, is best to like least best like we're not doing best to worst because there's no bad episode in this series um for me it goes four it goes uh one two then three i would essentially go from top to bottom i still think two is pretty damn great i i know just <laughs> a little bit i two is still my favorite four three one and I hate to say one is the worst because, again, I, I think we're all in agreement. It's really solid, but it's also the least ambitious of the four. But again, it, this series has been really impressive so far, and I can't wait to see where it goes. I love how varied our ranks are. This yeah. is the, it's, it's amazing. I love to see it. I just wanted to add that. <laughs> I'm surprised to see, like, a tentacle monster at the end of one. But then I guess tentacles are in style now because we they make a return in episode four. <laughs> Hydra. I, Hydra. I thought for a second, I was yeah. like, wait, is this in the Captain Carter universe? <laughs> we're 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 um what's what's the genre oh god what's the genre yeah. where it's kind of like noir horror kraken is it lovecraftian lovecraftian thank you yes. that's that was the bad joke i was gonna say but now i can't <laughs> think of the reference so it just felt flat <laughs> i'll pick it up for you um thank you and that's all for what if right yes yeah yeah and so you know, moving on to our next segment, we actually wanted to talk a little bit about the White Lotus uh, TV series. So that is something that I know for sure um, that Brandon and Noah both have watched. So I would actually really love to hear from both of them about it. So uh, Noah, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about what the show is about and what your thoughts are, were on it? 
Of course, um, I will probably talk for like five minutes trying to jumble together a summary. So instead, I'm going to read you the one from IMDb.com. Set in a tropical resort, it follows the exploits of various guests and employees over the span of a week. Um, The White Lotus is the name of this resort in Hawaii. And what it looks at is, um, I believe, let's see. It looks at three different families and the impact that they have both on each other and the workers of this White Lotus Resort. And throughout the entire series, we are watching, um, I mean, this cast is phenomenal. Uh, Brandon, I know you speak on everything like behind the scenes and on top of the scenes, and you're the man of names. So I'm going to leave that name handling to you. Uh, What I want to just say, though, is that there's one like not only say master of the house that's kind of who he is he's like the maestro trying to weave all of these people together all the while trying to save his own behind and um he is a chaotic mess and his name is armand he's portrayed by murray bartlett and steals the show for me him jennifer coolidge tanya mccoyd just lovely to watch i have more to say on it but brandon what do you want to say out the gate Yeah, we've been teasing this since, you know, the first episode. And if you're listening to all these in a binge, thank you very much for checking them out. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we've been teasing this for a little bit. I finally caught up on this a couple days ago because, you know, everyone I've been talking about and I promised no, I would watch it. I respect this and I totally understand why it's become, you know, binge-worthy television because this reminded me a lot of, you know, I know a lot of reality TV scripted, but like scripted content reality distilled programming, which is, you know, very unlikable, complex characters sent into this, you know, very glamorous environment and having to work off of each other for who knows how long. And to an extent, I totally see why that becomes event television because you can latch on to, oh, will, you know, will these characters go over the edge? Will they be redeemed? You know, who interacts with who, you know, who forms relationships with who? And that totally makes sense. And I also understand, you know, Mike White's insistence on, you know, this being a satire about, you know, white privilege and colonialism and how, you know, classes societies will often you know force themselves into you know indigenous cultures and i like a lot of that i will say i don't think he quite knows what to do with it past the first two episodes i understand where it goes but i think it starts looping itself in circles at points uh that being said the cast are all darn good at what they do um alexandra dario is great in this uh the woman who plays natasha rothwell is awesome in this and murray bartland who as you mentioned plays armand who is just, he's a tea kettle of a character. Like you're waiting for the moment where this character will just have enough. And you know, <laughs> like, and again, more of a commentary on like, you know, the BS of the service industry and all that. And that, that metaphor, I think actually works very well. Um, and he carries a lot of that. So I was impressed with a lot of the characters. Uh, Cristobal Tapia de Vere's, uh score is awesome. I have no idea how he came up with that intro melody, but it's going to be stuck in my head for the next few days. And I kind of hate him for it. Um, it looks gorgeous. I love some of the cinematography behind it. Like every other shot is, you know, a Hawaiian sunset or like a glorious, you know, beach or dinner house and everything. And it, it looks great. There is substance to it. It's not something I walked away going from, I want to revisit it at some point, but I'm really glad that I stuck with it. And it's only six episodes. It's fairly easy to get through, especially if you can get latched onto it. So I, I appreciate it more than anything else. A couple points I want to add is just uh, the BS of the service industry. Maybe that's why I loved it so much. Like <laughs> having, been, having been a server and having primarily worked in food industry um, before uh, graduating college, I just, I related so much to the, the, the moves, the mountains you will move to satisfy the customer. And in this case, the customer is three families, um, one family of which are actually 
I guess all three of them believe that those mountains need to be moved for them. And just seeing, you know, all of the faces that um, a service worker will make, you know, behind the scenes or immediately after giving some fake comment is like so relatable when you're working in those positions. And, and I think just um, completely believable in the sense of how these characters are portrayed. I think um, I stand by my statement that like Armand and Tanya, who is Marie Bartlett and Jennifer Coolidge, Jennifer Coolidge, I have never seen this way before. And yeah. I think that this is going to give her possibly an Emmy nod. Like I, I love to see her, all the characters here are completely fleshed out and they all get their screen time to really dive into who they are and what represents them. Um, I will agree with you that there are the first few episodes that draw you in, but then you ask the question of like, wait, why am I here? And then you have to remember, oh yeah, there's like, I guess there's a murder or there's like a death that you're going to, you know, realize by the end of the series. And that's not a spoiler. You realize that in the opening scene. Um, And so I had to remind myself of that to remain interested because at a certain point I was like, I'm kind of done with these characters. Like I, I know who they are. I know they're demons and I'm kind of tired of them. Can we move on? Uh, but I would stay because of the two characters that I mentioned. Um, I want to wrap this. Um, sorry, I got distracted by the message. Um, do you want to wrap with a rating, Brandon? Uh, Sam, you can close oh, it. Sam, that's what her message was. I'll close by asking overall ratings. Okay. Um, I believe this is the way I ended it. I'll go back. So ending on the White Lotus, uh, it's a limited series. I don't believe that it's getting a second season. It, it is. It totally oh. is. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, hey, if we get to return to the White Lotus and I get to see these characters again, you know what? I almost want to see new families come in and see how they interact with the with the White Lotus crew. Is that what's happening, Brandon? It, yeah. So Sorry, we'll get to your ratings in a second. But yes, there is a second season that was confirmed by HBO. It is going <gasps> to still feature at the White Lotus, but completely oh. new characters. Okay. Okay. Yes, there's negatives, but... I'll be looking out for that show. Um, When you mentioned the score, yes, that opening intro music did for me what Agatha all along did to WandaVision. Like (laughs) this tune does not leave your head and put it on, let it play while you're warming up your eggs and then just start dancing to it because it will stay in your head all day. Um, So to round things all up, you guys both really explained White Lotus perfectly. So I, I personally didn't have any extra questions to ask you. And so for the sake of time, I was curious to know what your overall ratings were of the White Lotus of all the episodes. how did you feel about it with our typical star rating um, 10 being the best? I'd love to return to it. Uh, the characters were amazing, but I could have used a bit more um, excitement throughout the episodes. Um, Cause I was kind of relying on those two characters to really give it to me. So uh, between a six and a half and a seven for a TV series. Yeah, I'm also a solid seven with this. It's like, again, I stand by that I don't think, I don't think Mike White quite knows what to do with it once it gets to a certain point, but I do admire a lot of its topics. I admire where it tries to take its characters, especially that it it doesn't lose steam in terms of the, you know, investment department of like, ooh, how, you know, scandalous is this going to get? Um, And again, the characters are compelling to a degree. I think, you know, there is something on a technical level to it. And you know what? It's got me invested in a season two where there are going to be none of the original characters. So (laughs) there's something to be said about that. That wraps our uh, Streaming Wars TV uh, nonsensical segment that we don't have a name for. And that's the name of it. Now we're going to go ahead and wrap with our final segment. Uh, This is the directorial debut segment where we explore the first project taken on by these legendary directors uh, in history. So today we are actually looking at Tim Burton and his first feature titled Pee Wee's Big Adventure. 
Yeah, so uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, of course, this is Tim Burton's directorial debut, uh, released from, why am I forgetting, Warner Brothers, which that's literally a plot point in the movie, why did I forget? Uh, <laughs> again, this is, uh, of course, starring Paul Rubens, who also co-writes the script with the uh, late Phil Hartman, rest in peace, uh, and Michael Vorhal. It also stars E.G. Daly, who most of you, if you're our age, might know as, uh, as Tommy Pickles from Rugrats. Uh, as well as a couple of other sporting players in there, Diane Salinger, Mark Holton, uh, Judd Oman, uh, and actually uh, James Brolin pops up in a brief moment in there that I will not spoil for any of you who have not watched it. Uh, and of course, Danny Elfman, because it's a Tim Burton movie, even from the start, Danny Elfman was still helping with the music cues. This is an adaptation of Rubens's uh, Pee-wee character, uh, Pee-wee Herman character from the Pee-wee Herman show, later Pee-wee's Playhouse, a bunch of other things. And the story is basically pretty simple. He has a bike that is amazing. He has a crush on a uh, bike shop worker named Dottie, played by P.T. Daly. And he just sort of goes about his day until eventually, oh God, his bike's been stolen. But by who and why? And we don't know. And it essentially sets Pee-wee off on this legendary journey across the country to try and find his beloved bike. And he meets characters along the way, such as uh, a singing hobo who is, who is incredibly tone deaf. He meets a biker gang who tries to kill him we're never really quite sure um he meets a uh, waitress named simone who is trying to make her dream to paris come true all these you know little vignettes i will start out with the stone just really quick and then i'll toss it to you guys i grew up watching pu's playhouse uh my dad hi again dad i mentioned you twice in the show uh he had a collection of the uh pu's playhouse vhs tapes and whenever i was sick or my brother when i were uh sick we'd have a little tv and we'd just watch the vhs of that so i knew of the character i knew of what rubens has done with the character I have never watched this, though, and I always found it weird how, you know, Tim Burton's first movie, you know, Beetlejuice and Batman and, you know, Big Fish, but letters that start with B, um, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. And he starts with this, which is this kind of, you know, goofy cross-country road trip comedy. And you know what? I, I actually think it really works. I think you have to be locked into Paul Rubens' sensibility to this, uh, but I think that's where Phil Hartman's credit on the script is so crucial, because if you know his work from, you know, The Simpsons or a billion other things that Phil Hartman was doing back in the day. It totally works. I think he makes a lot of the humor genuine and, you know, a, a kind of worldly to a degree. Paul Rubens is great as Pee Wee. Obviously, he knows exactly what buttons did with this. But as far as like Burton's directing capabilities, it, I, it was funny. For the first 20 minutes, I thought to myself, this isn't a Tim Burton movie. And then eventually about half an hour in, I was like, oh, this is a Tim Burton movie. And when it does, it's really fun. And it's all the things that I love about Burton as a filmmaker. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in just a second. But on a basis level, yeah, I found this really entertaining. Sam, you've seen this uh, a while ago. How does it feel revisiting this years later? Yeah, to me, it, it, you know, I saw it when I was so little, like probably before I was 10, I think. I don't know. Time's an enigma. But the the point is, is like, you know, seeing it as an adult with more understanding of movie, you could see Tim Burton's touch um, early on in this movie. And I think specifically more in Beetlejuice, for me, at least. It kind of like in the... I, I hate to use the word nonsensical again because I use it so often earlier, but again, nonsensical. nonsensical. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just kind of like that whimsy, uh, that whimsical feeling you get from both movies. That's almost like childlike, but in in a fun way. It, it, you know, it brings a lot of imagination to our main characters in either of those movies. And so I feel like I see the biggest Tim Burton correlation between those two. So yeah, when you revisit it, it it's it's you know basically I, I see his touch in that. 
Having said that, though, I was never always a fan of, of Pee-wee. And I think it's because the, you know, the fact that it was always so loud from, you know, like he was a loud character. I wasn't a huge fan of that and him acting a little goofy. But, you know, it's, you know, you, you still got to give it some respect considering it was his debut. Uh, no, moving on to you. I was familiar with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, um, you know, this title movie. In elementary school, I believe my, uh, I had a Thea who after school, she would watch me. And uh, one day, I think she might have rented this or it was on TV or who knows what, but point is we did watch it. And uh, I remember looking at the cover and being like, you know, what the heck is this going to be about? Even in my young age. And then we started watching it. And I, I have to agree with Sam, like Pee Wee was always just a bit too loud and just like the description of it says he's like a man child. And I never, I could never um, I guess, be comfortable with that. Like, it was always kind of just taking me off guard and being like, oh, like, I'm, I was I was waiting for him to, like, crack another joke that was a little bit too explosive for me. Um, but considering the director, I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we're talking about this today. Uh, we're talking Tim Burton. And I think that through my rewatch, because I did rewatch this earlier today, um, it became, uh, I guess there's a layer of appreciation that I have to apply to it now because Tim Burton does this, uh, as Sam says, whimsical nature so well. And um, I I did admire watching it. I like all the goofiness, all the wacky contraptions that exist inside Pee-wee's house. I like when Tim Burton takes us to the dark side. I like when Tim Burton takes us through a nightmarish sequence where we're like, you know, this is a kid's movie. Like, I'm surprised that you could shoe in a biker club that's um, that has the name of, like, Satan. Let me find my notes. Let me find my notes. Because he says the, <laughs> the, oh, my gosh. I can't read my own handwriting. But it's, like, the Driver's Club of Satan Helpers or something like that. And so I was like, whoa, Satan's Helpers in this Pee-wee's Big Adventure? But um, not to say that Burton wrote that. Uh, but it was just, I think it couldn't have existed without Burton's touch uh, to be like as approachable because this is a PG movie. So kids are watching this and uh, looking at his future projects. I mean, there's always that element of dark to him. I mean, you're talking Corpse Bride, you're talking Frankenweenie um, and, and the list goes on and on. He's legendary. And although claymation scares me, I have, so, there's so many pictures that I think um, I probably like have an affinity for horror because of this man's work. And so uh, hats off to him. Um, I did enjoy watching this. Uh, although, you know, Pee Wee does, it can be a little bit of a turnoff. He's hilarious. And he is, you know, living in his old world, in his own world. Um, and that's in his own right. And I'm somebody who embraces that as well. It's like, you know, if you can have fun on your own, then do that and always embody that. So I can only imagine like the level of inspiration Pee Wee probably had on, you know, who, you name them. Um, but yeah, you know, I was happy to, I was happy to explore it. Going to our ratings, just since we're uh, running a bit low on time, I'm giving this a solid eight. Uh, it's basically the Muppets movie meets the jerk. And I love both of them. <laughs> and like Pee Wee Herman's sensibility, it does get a little, a hold of itself. Sometimes you can totally tell that this is Tim Burton trying to work with someone else's material. And it does totally show, especially when you look further to, you know, Planet of the Apes and Dumbo and adaptations that I don't think have quite worked for this style, but you can also tell where his style works. And when you get to, you know, some of the artistic developments that he gets on later with, again, Big Fish and with, you know, uh, Big Eyes and things like that. And later on, and even with, you know, Danny Elfman's score, which I think is really darn underrated. I really appreciate a lot of this. I had a lot of fun with this. And if you haven't seen this, give it a shot. Again, Pee Wee Herman's humor is not for everyone, but I enjoyed it having said what I said, not my kind of sense of humor, but it was still a solid movie and something that's memorable and fun for a lot of our childhoods. Uh, I would probably give it like a solid, maybe like six and a half, I'd say six and a half or seven. 
while it wasn't for me, it definitely was a whole movie and one that was enough for my theater to say, hey, kids, come watch this. So I can only imagine the grip it had on people. Uh, I'm going to give this a, um, I'll give it a seven. You know, for kids movies, it probably is one of the ones that works. So I'll give it a seven. And that will do it for episode three for today of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for listening uh, out there in, you know, internet podcast land. Thank you so much for giving our show a shot. Uh, hopefully by the time we have this up, uh, our podcast feed will be live. Our social media feed will hopefully will be live. Uh, but until then, we will just link together for our uh, for our individual work as well. I want to thank our co-hosts for today. First of all, Noah Guzman, thank you so much for joining us today. Noah, where can the people find you online and what do you got going on? Yes, thank you. Um, having to repeat my Twitter handle over audio makes me think I should rename it. But right now it is at J-S-Y-K-N-O-W-A. It stands for just so you know what, but spelled hilariously because that's who I am. And uh, not working on any current reviews, but I will let you know when I have a new one up. I definitely have work on Odyssey. And my latest one is The Night House, which you heard me review last week. Also joining us today is Samantha Aaron Carvaya. Sam, thank you again for joining us. And there was a puppy who was also joining us, who is our fourth unofficial co-host. Where can the people find you and the puppy? Everybody can find me at um, on Twitter at S underscore in Corvaya. And so we will have that link somewhere because the last name is fun to spell. Um, but then also on Instagram at Sam I am 520 in a much easier spelling for your convenience. So yeah. Uh, and then some re- a review that I'm working on uh, that I'll talk about by next episode um, is the card counter. Sorry, Oscar Isaac. So that was that was interesting. Can't wait to talk about that. Find my reviews on Odyssey online. And uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's uh, Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. I am working on my Cinderella review, which should hopefully be up by the end of the week. I am also working on a couple of uh, other projects in the midst that may or may not get approved. We'll see if those happen. And uh, just while we're at it, uh, go follow my band uh, at Kellbox Official. We have some things cooking in there, and I'd be appreciative if you guys follow that as well. They're amazing. You need to follow them. I just, I just got to plug that too. They're really fun to hear live. So give them a follow for today for episode three from myself from samantha and corvaya from noah guzman this is in plot devices and we hope to see you next time